Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2020 Dublin Festival of History, journalist and historian Anne Applebaum returns to the festival to talk about her book, Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends. Anne is in conversation with Pascal Donoghue, TD, Ireland's Minister for Finance and President of the Eurogroup. The questions are asked by Deputy City Librarian Brendan Teeling and the episode was recorded via Zoom on the 3rd of October 2021. Well, good evening, everybody, and uh, thank you all very much for tuning into this event. Uh, And uh, I want to begin by thanking Brendan and Dublin City Council uh, for the opportunity to participate in this. And uh, I also want to say how really thrilled I am uh, to have the opportunity to spend some of a Saturday evening uh, talking to Anne Applebaum, uh, our real guest uh, for tonight's programme. Uh, Brendan has already touched on many of the extraordinary works that uh, Anne has penned during her career. Out of the different books that he's touched on, uh, the one that really struck the greatest chord with me was Iron Curtain. Uh, because Iron Curtain explained uh, the huge challenges that a number of countries faced as they tried to forge a a democracy, trying to forge a new way of living in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And her amazing trilogy of histories, including, of course, Gulag, reminds us all of the pitiless consequences Uh, on lives, on citizens, on subjects, when rule is through coercion and when the constraint of democracy is no longer in place. Uh, And the constraint of democracy, which I refer to there, of course, is institutions, the rule of law and the ability of people to act as a check on the ambitions of those who govern them. Uh, This puts her latest book into a real very uh, demanding, I think, context, because uh, her latest book, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends, brings a real personal context to what is happening in politics now all over the world, uh, but is uh, particularly demanding in the context of all of the other books that Anne has written, where she points to what can happen to those uh, when the rule of terror uh, is uh, the way in which uh, government is delivered. So I'm delighted to be speaking to Anne here this evening. So Anne, I wonder if we could begin our discussion uh, by if you could talk to us a little bit about the opening scenes of your latest book uh, and about the New Year's Eve party that you hosted on the 31st of December 1999. Uh, who was at that party? What you thought about the new century that was to come and maybe what followed afterwards. So first of all, thank you for that extraordinarily generous introduction. I am truly flattered to be interviewed by a senior Irish politician, and I'm hoping that you will let me ask you some questions, maybe in the course (laughs) of the conversation too. Um, I'm also happy to be at the 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 Dublin Literary Festival, where I have been in real life before, and I hope to be there again. Um, I'm always delighted and happy to visit Dublin, and I'm sorry that circumstances mean that I can't do it this year. But who knows? Maybe maybe next year, if I'm if I'm lucky enough to be invited. 
Um, so thanks for those words about the book. Um, this is a really different kind of book from anything I've written before. It's a it's not a it's not an objective history based on archives written from the point of view of lots of people um, with with an attempt to get a kind of objective full picture of what happened. Um, this is a very subjective book. It's my opinion. Um, it tells a story that I am part of and I might have biases about and I try to lay out what the what the biases are. Um, that's why it's partly written in the first person. Um, and it's partly why I start, as you as you pointed out, with the description of a party. And just to be clear, I'm not a great hostess. It's not like I give a lot of parties. It's not a book about parties or anything like that. But the, 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 but the party is a kind of metaphor. Um, and it's a, it's a metaphor for a kind of agglomeration of friends and contacts and a kind of group of people who shared more or less similar political opinions. And the party took place at my country house in Poland. It's a house that my husband and I had renovated. It was a complete ruin and it was rebuilt over, it took about 15 years in the end. But um, in 1999, it was more or less finished, at least enough. It had a roof and there was a, there was a room that had no furniture in it that was great for a party. Um, and the people who were there were mostly um, fairly junior members of the sort of Polish political world, a few people who were, my husband was then a deputy minister in a center-right government. There were a few of his colleagues. There were a few very junior journalists. Um, there were a few friends of mine from England, a couple friends from the U.S. And more or less, you could have described the people in that room as belonging to the center-right. You might have called some of them Thatcherites. You might have called some of them Reaganites or former Reaganites. This is, you know, this is 1999. Um, certainly the Poles you would have described as anti-communists because they all came from the anti-communist solidarity camp. And they all shared what would have been a kind of rough and not, you know, not very detailed vision of the world that was the same. And the vision was one of a Poland that was going to be integrated with the rest of Europe, it was going to join the European Union, it was going to join NATO. It was now more or less on the same team as, you know, as Britain and France and Ireland and, and the United States. Um, it was going to be um, a liberal democracy like all of those liberal democracies. And generally speaking, we were all part of this liberal democratic camp. Um, and it really felt on that evening like we had rebuilt our house and now we were rebuilding the country. Um, um, you know, we being, um, you know, my husband and I, my husband's Polish, um, but I, I was, I was then living there and we, you know, and that we were, and there was a kind of optimism that I very strongly associate with that moment in that era, you know, throughout the 1990s, particularly towards the end of the nineties, because the, the immediate aftermath of communism, there was, was rough and complicated and convoluted and there were ups and downs, but by about 1999, it felt like things were going the right way. Um, 10 years later, no, sorry, I should say 20 years later, um, when I began thinking about that party, I realized that I was, that much had changed. And one of the things that had changed was that I was no longer speaking to some of the people who'd been at that party. And not only that, they were not speaking to many other guests who'd been there. And in fact, the party had divided and the group of people whom it represented had also divided. And there was, and the division was not personal. It was political. 
Um, and what had happened in the intervening 20 years was that the, the center-right in Poland, like the center-right in the United States and in Britain and in many other places, had divided in two. And one group, and I would put myself and my husband and some of our friends in it, had remained on what I would call the, the center-right, the, the you know, Christian associated with the Christian Democrats of Europe. Um, the, other, the other part had become something quite different, much more radical, much angrier, much more... Um, um, you know, my, you know, you can call them far right. You can call them populist. You can you can give them a name, but they had certainly broken off in a very different direction. They had a very different vision of Poland. Um, and I, I asked myself, why did that happen? Um, and the book is an elaborate, you know, attempt to answer that question. And there is not a single answer. And I don't give you one single thesis. Um, instead, I, I I did read a history of other places and times where there had been polarization. I did reporting in some other countries, and I, I thought about Poland and the United States and Britain, um, and I went back and interviewed some of my friends and, and spoke to them. And that's essentially the, the dilemma that the book describes. And I think what's very uh, fascinating about the book is that uh, you talk in with real candor about what happened to a number of those friendships and what some of the people who were at the party and who were former colleagues and friends of yours, the roles they went on to perform, the work they went on to do in the intervening 20 years. Um, And obviously the uh, sections in your book about British politics in particular uh, are always going to be very interesting to an Irish audience. So I wonder, could you just talk us through some of the experiences that you had when you were working in The Spectator, the people you got to know then, uh, and maybe your views about how that created the environment that ultimately led to some of the things we're now dealing with in the UK? Right. So, so one of the other groups of people, you know, who I was friends with in the, in the 90s and 2000s, who have since also divided very bitterly, was many was the the sort of intellectual conservative intellectuals who hovered around and still hover around actually the Tory party. And, you know, through no great, um, you know, achievement of my own, it turns out that quite a few people who are now leading Brexiteers are people who I did know at that time when they were much younger and when they were journalists. And so I worked at the Spectator magazine in the early 1990s, which is a you know, the kind of house magazine of the British Tory party. Um, one of the people in that general orbit was Boris Johnson. Another was Michael Gove. Um, and many of the other people who had the, um, the, the who, who, who later led the Brexit movement in many ways were, well, I knew at the time when they were, they were much younger. And I think I, you know, again, looking back on that moment, I, I, you know, it's easier to understand things in retrospect, um, I, I, that was really the moment when a kind of dissatisfaction began to creep into the Tory party. So remember, this is the moment just after Thatcherism. It's after the end of the Cold War. And there was a real dissatisfaction with what was left to do. So John Major was the prime minister. And, and the, you know, what was John Major doing? John Major was seeking to re bring together Europe again after the division of the Cold War. You know, he was a pragmatist. He was solving problems. He was joining with other European leaders, you know, to, to, to heal the continent. And to a lot of people, that was boring. And it was, 
it lacked the 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 radicalism, the excitement, the feeling of being in the avant-garde that many people had had during the Thatcher years. Um, and in particular, it seemed to they many felt that it somehow diminished the role of England in Englishness, that the special role that they had been able to play because of because of and through Mrs. Thatcher and her special relationship to the United States, that that was no longer that was gone. Um, and a kind of disappointment with reality began to creep in. Um, in the book, I describe um, uh, a little bit, I, I write a little bit about Roger Scruton, who is a British philosopher who I, I knew, and an, uh, another kind of friend and colleague, the British um, colonist Simon Heffer. Um, and I talk about what the two of them were writing at the time. Um, and these are, these are people, by the way, who I think of as very sincere and not, not, not opportunistic. Um, but at, at that time, both began writing with deep disappointment about modern British politics, you know, that something was gone. Roger at that time wrote a, wrote a book um, that described, you know, he wrote, he described it as an elegy for England. You know, England had died. It had been, my civilization is gone. Um, Simon Heffer was a British political columnist who wrote m- something very similar, you know, that we've lost so much. We aren't the same nation that we were. We're, you know, we don't have great leaders anymore. We don't have, we don't shine. Um, and very, and both of them, Simon in particular, put a lot of the blame for that change onto Europe. You know, Europe, the European Union, this is, this is kind of eating away at our lifeblood and, 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 and undermining the Englishness of England. Um, and that was a kind of, that was a feeling, that feeling of despair and disappointment um, that underlay a lot of what later became um, the Brexit movement. Um, I, I also, I also described Boris Johnson, who was a very different kind of character, who I think very early on identified that mood and that feeling and sought to do politics with it. So, okay, people feel this disappointment, it's boredom, you know, let's, let's use that, you know, let's first he used it as a journalist, you know, then later on he used it as a politician. I don't think he ever believed very deeply either in Brexit or in the the project. Um, I think he would have been quite happy for Britain to stay in the European Union, but he saw this, this mood as something he could kind of hitch himself onto um, and, and have it, carry him forward and and he was right it did and what, what i found so interesting about uh, those passages in the book and we'll have to come on to talk about the parallel to this in american politics and obviously what's happening at the moment is you identify two different dynamics the first dynamic is what's happening with ideas and how conservatism uh, ultimately creates a set of dynamics the consequences of which were at least in the uk what is now happening with Brexit. But one of the other dynamics and one of the other uh, forces that I think you're very honest about is you talk about the role of careers, you talk about the role of ambition, you talk about ego, uh, about how, in your view, in democracies that have experienced these kind of challenges, some of the forces that have driven this along have been things that are all too familiar in politics personal ambition, people that feel they haven't got treated like they should have, people who are feeling they're waiting for the broadcaster, for the government, for a political party to contact them, and it doesn't happen. So could you talk a little bit about that, um, about the the role of careers and ambition in leading to some of the things you're now concerned about? 
So it's so interesting to me that you picked out that facet of the book. Um, I'm married to a politician. I know a lot of politicians. Um, and one of the things I could also see happening around me, both in Poland um, and in Britain, was the way in which um, this kind of disappointment with reality or disappointment with society could also be matched and echoed in many people by their disappointment in their own careers. So, you know, so, you know, anger that independent Poland, you know, didn't become what I thought it would become and also anger that I didn't become prime minister. Um, Anger that, you know, post-Thatcherite Britain didn't go the way we wanted it to go or wasn't as glamorous as we had hoped. And also, anger that, you know, my career isn't happening in the same way that it is. And, you know, it's, it's actually, um, I think when people write about politics, they often spend a lot too much time talking about, you know, the world of ideas and ideology. And while I do think that matters and, and people do care about it, the, you know, the ideas get played out through the behavior of individual people. And one of the things I do in the book is I sketch out a few careers and I, I show how, how this mix works, you know, that people who are you know, who are, who are, have, people have both political and private motivations, their desire to, to, you know, they're, they're, they find radicalism appealing both because they like the drama and the glamour of it. And also because the creation of a new political movement gives them a role where they didn't have one before and gives them a new opening for their, for their political careers. So I, I read an interview uh, that you gave recently with the British journalist, uh, Nick Cohen in the UK. And he teased through this theme with you. And uh, as I am an amateur interviewer, and as I'm stepping into the breach here tonight very intrepidly, um, I'm going to borrow a question that he gave to you, and I'm going to borrow the answer you gave. And Which I maybe, probably can't remember. Yes. <laughs> well, all, all the more reason for me to read it out to you. And maybe you might develop this theme a little bit more. So Nick, in this interview, said the following. Uh, Speaking to you, he said, shouldn't she have seen it coming, I asked her. Shouldn't she have realised that the world she inhabited included authoritarians who would turn on her and everything she believed in? Typically, instead of huffing puffing and trying to pretend she'd never been in the wrong, she laughs and admits she probably should have asked harder questions sooner of her former friends. So. What would the harder questions have been? And what do you think of those friends now when you see the roles that some of them are occupying? So, as you know, if you read the book, I did try to ask some of them questions more recently. Yeah. Um, a lot of them wouldn't talk to me. One or two of them did. Um, I think the harder questions were about, um, um, okay, this this Euroscepticism, which is sort of a joke and sort of serious, which is what it was in the 1990s. How far do you are you going to push it? Um, have you thought about what the consequences of withdrawal from Europe are? Um, and, and do you want to withdraw from Europe? Um, because at the time, um, that wasn't clear that, that that was the direction they were going. Um, more seriously, um, you know, I suppose questions should have been asked of the Polish right, the Hungarian right. Um, you know, you, you know the history of your political movements. Um, how, how loudly are you willing to reject things that they used to stand for? I mean, I mean the Polish right from the 1920s and 30s. Um, um, 
I would I would make one um, you know one 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 I would adapt my answer to Nick's question in one way, which is though that I I also think that you know all of these movements could have gone in many directions. I mean, if you look at the American Republican Party, for example, um, and what it's now become under Donald Trump. Um, it didn't have to go that way. In other words, you can find the antecedents of Trump if you look at it going back, going back to, you know, appeals to racism, appeals to um, the, the, the old Confederate alliances in the South. You can also find the legacy of George W. Bush, who at the time he became president was intending to make a big outreach to Hispanics. His first foreign visit was to Mexico. He was intending to do immigration reform. All of that was altered by by 9-11, which shifted his presidency very dramatically. But, you know, it's always very easy to look at things in retrospect. Here's what we should have seen. Um, but at the time, you know, many of these choices were still radically open. I mean, the you know, and the Polish right in the 1990s contained this range of views from Donald Tusk, on the one hand, who was Polish prime minister and then president of the European Council and remains in the center right, to... Um, to people who are, you know, who are now open, aggressive anti-Semites and who say so in public and do so all the time. So you had this broad range of people and, you know, feeling like you were part of it at that time um, didn't necessarily mean you, you agree with all. I mean, politics is always about coalitions and it's always about groups of people who are together, sometimes for ideological, sometimes opportunistic reasons. Um, and the anti-communist and sort of Cold War era right-wing coalitions were also, you know, contained many different kinds of people. Um, it's just that because of events over the last 20 and 30 years, um, they've broken up in ways that actually I don't think you could have necessarily predicted. Um, you couldn't have predicted. I, I don't think Trump and Trumpism necessarily followed from the Bush family, for example. Um, you know, there there are other alternative histories that you can imagine having 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 taken place so what you picked up in my one of my earlier questions to you dad uh, uh, of course as a practicing politician uh, what i found very honest about the book is your acknowledgement of uh, some of the forces that can be at play in big political events and big political uh, force uh, uh, changes uh, and uh, you know on that point uh, what interest of me is wasn't so much the ambition or at times the thwarted ambition that uh, can play a big role. It's the role of agency, the role of contingency and the difference at times one individual, a a person can make to that. Um, It often strikes me and that one of the great what ifs of recent modern political history here in Europe would have been uh, if David Cameron decided to adopt, interpret the result of the Brexit referendum in a different way and decided to stay on as prime minister to make that happen. And it's one of the great what ifs regarding uh, where would we be now if he had decided to interpret the will of the British people in a particular way in the immediate hours and day or two after the result had taken place. Um, But amidst all of your analysis, there was a particular line in the book uh, that is uh, has stuck with me since I read it, which is one of the reasons why your book is one of the most important books of the year. And it was this following line. 
given the right conditions, any society can turn against democracy. So maybe could you talk to us a little bit about what you think those conditions are? And given that you've just talked about what's happening in the UK, could you maybe answer that question with a reference to what's happening in American politics at the moment? The kind of scenes that we've seen now over the last number of days since the debate in particular. And talk to us about what you think those conditions are. And uh, do you think they help understand or are relevant indeed to what we're seeing happening in the United States of America? So they are very relevant. Um, I mean, the, 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 the conditions are begin, I think, with what we've already discussed, which is this sense of disappointment and pessimism. Um, it's always at the moment when if you if you genuinely begin to feel that your society is degenerate, you know, that your civilization has ended and that your country has come to some kind of calamitous halt, you know, that it won't develop any further. This is the moment when you begin to look for alternative political systems. Um, and I do think that there are people on the American right who have come to that deep conclusion and who had begun to look for those alternatives. Um, I also think the, the other really important condition, and this is the, you know, this is the theme that comes back over and over again in the book, and we all, we all know about it, is the presence of very profound polarization. So when you have, as you now have in the United States, and as you now have in a number of democratic countries, very deep divides, um, and when the nation is divided into two political camps that don't trust one another, and indeed, one camp describes itself as patriotic and sees the others as enemies or traitors or foreigners. Um, and when, you know, then you begin to have uh, what, you know, what that leads to is a really profound distrust of the system itself. Because if the if your opponents are enemies and traitors and not patriots, then if, you know, then if they take control, if they win an election and take control of the institutions, you know, then that's a catastrophe. And so you can't let it happen and you need to stop it from happening um, at all costs. Um, and this is the way that some Republicans now talk about the Democratic Party and, and some um, Republican publicists, I would say, um, talk about the Democrats as representing the far left, you know, some kind of insane madness. If they win, then America's finished. Um, and you can hear this kind of rhetoric. I was you just heard it this evening um, from an announcer um, from a, from a, from somebody on Fox News, um, and and once you have that kind of polarization, then then you begin to develop. And by the way, you can you're, you will you you have it now on the left about the right as well. I, I I my book is about the right, but many of these same pathologies affect the left. Um, and the and once you have that, well, I mean, how can you have democracy in a circumstance where you no longer trust the opposition party to keep the institutions going to maintain order um, if they, if they if they win, then you begin to have people saying, well, if, if we let them win, that will be such a catastrophe that we just can't let them win. So we need to cheat. We need to change the rules. We need to do whatever it takes um, to make sure they don't win. And you have heard, we have heard that kind of language in the United States in the last few weeks. Um, just before he got sick, um, President Trump was repeating over and over again this idea that the election is going to be rigged, that absentee ballots, which we know are going to be in high numbers this year, um, are going to be faked. 
Um, there had been hints already that some people in the Republican Party were looking at ways to manipulate or question the result once it came in. Um, and we were, we, we were, you know, until 48 hours ago, um, I was preparing myself for the big story of the next month, which was going to be, how do we prevent a stolen election? What do we do if Trump refuses to step down? What do we do if he tries to stay, you know, if he tries to change the rules? Um, obviously, the news that he's very ill um, has changed that. And I cannot tell you exactly how that's going to play itself out right now. Um, you know, the, the, you know, there's still, you know, we, he, he could get better in a week and we would be back to the same story. He could get worse and 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 be ill and and then the, the whole calculus changes. But the but it is nevertheless the case that this, you know, we were at we are at a unique moment in American history where we were a, a, you know, many serious people, lawyers, judges, um, activists, politicians of, of all camps were beginning to prepare themselves for the possibility of a grotesquely distorted and maybe even stolen election. So yes, I think in the U.S. Um, we are still pretty close to that outcome. Well, I, 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 I one of your uh, fellow writers and uh, uh, prophets on issues like this, Timothy Snyder, uh, published an extraordinary, very short book there a while ago called On Tyranny. Uh, and of course, he looks back into history uh, to give us an idea about some, what are the warning signs that we need to observe when it looks as if democracy is going to fray. And if you look back if on uh, your own uh, study of history, particularly the study of history in the 1920s, 30s and 40s, um, uh, to turn the question on its head, and as opposed to uh, looking about what are the echoes of what could be dangerous and what can be difficult about what can happen in democracies, where do you see hope? That's an that's a that's a that's a good question. Or, where do you see or, hope? Or maybe if I could ask a, a starker question: Do you see hope? So yes, I do see hope. Um, I should say that I have come to the conclusion that pessimism is irresponsible, um, and that we are always required to look for hope. Um, pessimism is, is like saying to your children, forget it, you know, don't try anything and don't do anything. Funny enough, again, just before the president got sick, I was myself working on an article, a kind of project where I was pulling together um, a kind of citizen's guide, you know, a list of all the amazing things that people are doing all over the country um, in the United States to protect the election. Um, there are, um, you know, there are multiple activist groups. There are teams of lawyers ready to go. There are people volunteering to work at the polls as poll workers. Um, there are people organizing not just get out the vote campaigns, you know, which they do in every election, but also voter advice campaigns, how to advise people who are, want to send in an absentee ballot, how to make sure they do it without making mistakes. And you could see and feel all over the country um, this massive civic movement getting started and beginning to move um, as people um, began to be aware. I think that the debate really sharpened that awareness. And as people began to be aware that this could be a very dangerous election, you can see things changing. Um, and so I would say that my hope lies in those kinds of civic movements, in the number of people who are now involved in public life, and particularly the number of young people um, 
you know, I know I, I happen to know a large group of young people who, particularly in this weird moment when, you know, of COVID and insecurity and 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 not knowing what's going to happen left, who've thrown themselves into election campaigns um, and into working on behalf of many of these um, even these bipartisan um, um, groups and 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 advisory groups who are seeking to protect and enhance and and, and protect the election. Um, And I just see an enormous amount of enthusiasm out there. And I see, as I said, in particular, a younger generation, which whose consciousness has been raised um, by everything that's happened um, over the last couple of years, but particularly in recent months and who are now, who have now been mobilized. And really, I think I have a lot of hope in them and a lot of faith in them that they will be the next generation of American politicians. Well, if I could step outside of my role as a humble interviewer for a moment to just concur with what you said so strongly, um, I think at a time of such difficulty and at a time in which we're so aware of what the challenges are, uh, there are so many reasons uh, to be uh, very uh, optimistic about our ability to make progress and about our ability to see better days ahead and overcome uh, the many, many challenges that we're now grappling with. Uh, but if I could just go back to your question there a moment, go on. Uh, you made reference there for the first time in our interview to the impact of COVID-19 uh, and uh, the very obvious effects it's having on American politics at the moment and on the campaign. But in some of your more recent articles, you've begun to think about the more general consequences of COVID-19 for the kind of politics that we're discussing here. Uh, And uh, on that point, what do you think will be uh, the impact of this pandemic on the kind of politics your book writes about? Are there two different paths in front of us? Is there a path in which the case for experts and the case for institutions and the case for politics based on rationality and making an argument uh, based on evidence that there is a path that's hopeful ahead of us? Or is there another path ahead of us in which this pandemic just deepens the kind of fractures uh, that have led to the politics that you're so worried about and that it accelerates the uh, the uh, development of uh, some of the issues that we're discussing here. So one of the really interesting things about the coronavirus is that, contrary to what many people expected, um, you can't divide countries' responses to it debate based on whether they're democracies or dictatorships. As it turned out, the the key elements to a and it's very early days, and of course this may change, but the key elements to a relatively successful response and a relatively disastrous response had nothing to do with whether you were a dem- democracy or a dictatorship and everything to do with whether you were a society that put great faith, that first of all had good science, um, and second of all put faith in science and in scientists and, pu- and, and had good public health institutions and had people who had faith in public health institutions. Um, And so you can see on the one hand, um, you know, Germany, a country where they were hit actually pretty hard by it in the beginning. They were close to Italy, which was one of the early epicenters. They have a lot of dealings with China. Um, Nevertheless, got control over it, at least in the first wave. We'll see what happens later. But in the first wave, got control over it because people trusted the government, because they were willing to obey orders, because 
um, because there was a there was a there was a feeling that um, that that you know that science needed to be listened to, and then you have by contrast the United States where. We were led by a president who, you know, covered up, you know, and and and, um, you know, disguised the nature of the virus from the beginning, went back and forth about what the recommendations were, sometimes promoted science, sometimes refused to listen to it. By the end, was telling people around him to take off their masks um, and created this fantastically politicized, chaotic disorganized um, reaction to the virus, which has left America with one of the highest death tolls and and one of the worst, you know, worst health situations um, in the world. You know, and those are two democracies. Um, And so what it turns out to matter um, and what turned out to at least to build public confidence and give people the sense that you know, that the government was dealing with it were these were these elements of public life that so often get ignored, as I said you know, trust, um, you know, faith in the civil service, faith in bureaucracy, I mean, in, in government, in, in government, um, belief that at least the people who run institutions like who run public health institutions are well-meaning. Um, all of those elements of that kind of feeling of, um, you know, the, you know, of, of, of solidarity as well that, that some nations have and others don't contributed to a successful reaction. Um, and it really is my hope that, you know, in the in the in the years to come, that when people go back and look at this moment and think about it, that they will conclude that, you know, they will look at the countries that were able um, to maintain calm and to maintain some kind of order and to keep the virus under control, that they will emulate those qualities um, and not the qualities of the American president or of the Brazilian president um, or of the or of the other, you know, uh, other countries where where the response, particularly wealthy countries, poorer countries, is a slight. You know, they have different different levels of resources. But in among the wealthy countries, um, where we will look at the ones who have had such a catastrophic result and ask why, um, and conclude that it was this politics of disinformation, of polarization, um, and above all of you know disingenuousness and lying um, that 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 led the United States down this disastrous path. Well, Anne, on, on the, uh, that particular note, um, I'm conscious that you have uh, other commitments you need to get to this evening. But I also know we have a really big audience tuning in here tonight that are very eager to put questions to you. I, in a moment, I'm going to hand over to Brendan, uh, who's going to invite questions from the audience. Uh, just two concluding points from me. Uh, the first one is, is, I know the mantra that institutions matter is not only one that will get the heart beating quicker or uh, cause surges of emotion or excitement, but it does appear to me, I think, to sum up the points, some of the points that you concluded with there, uh, that having impartial institutions, institutions that people can trust and institutions that have expertise, I think in the arena of public health and in our civil service, we are seeing the value of that at the moment. And then on my concluding point, before I go back to Brendan, if I go back again to the interview uh, that was conducted with you by Nick, that was done far more expertly than I know I've been able to manage. Uh, If I read them out earlier on, I want want to conclude with what he said as well, uh, when he said, uh, and I'm quoting him, Applebaum can bring a candle into the darkness of the populist right. 
She does not know whether it can be beaten. She's a journalist, not a soothsayer. But I know that if you want to fight it, her writing is an arsenal that stores the sharpest weapons to hand. Uh, So I hope the viewers of this interview here this evening have gained a sense uh, from this interview regarding the sharp weapons that are indeed the arguments and ideas of Anne and why they're so vital and relevant uh, to the many different debates that matter in democracies at the moment. Uh, And I'll hand over to Brendan now to moderate the rest of the evening. And if there's any really hard questions that are put to me, I'll ask Anne to answer them. So over to you, Brendan. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's a fascinating conversation. I suppose you say from the outset that the Minister won't answer any questions about the budget. Uh, That's all for starters. Um, Look, we have have lots of questions in and we'll see how many we get through. Uh, Our first question comes from Bobby McDonough, who's a a former diplomat and Irish ambassador to UK and EU. And along with uh, a chap called David, I have a similar question, so I'll put them together. It is, uh, Ireland, like most EU countries, is still relatively unaffected by the populist pandemic. What advice would Anne give us to preserve our political health what are the symptoms to look out for? And I suppose added to that is another question. What were the conditions in Ireland that meant that this extreme right movement never gained widespread popular support here? So I feel that the minister should answer questions about Irish politics um, rather than me. I mean, um, I, so, so the second question, I think, goes to him. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the first question is, which is what, what you can do to prevent it. Um, I think the... Um, I think understanding and seeing and being aware of polarization before it's happening or as it's happening and seeking to remedy it right away. In other words, through the actions and language of politicians, um, through community outreach and um, and attempts to breach divides, um, um, making sure that all mainstream political parties, all political parties, forget the word mainstream, Um, all political parties are seeking to reach all elements of the population, um, ensuring, you know, it's almost the responsibility of politicians to make sure that there is nobody who feels left out of politics or not involved. Um, You know, keep asking yourself, how do I bring these people in? Um, And the same, and by the way, the same message to journalists and to people in the media and to people in public life and cultural life. How do we make sure we're reaching the people who don't read our newspaper? How do we, how do we, how do we make sure that we aren't, um, that we, you know, that that we aren't accidentally contributing to polarization? Um, Those are, it's, it's really, it's really the avoidance of and the constant focus on, on polarization and the attempt to keep people um, making sure that our, all of our conversations are about the same subject, that we don't begin to live in a nation where everybody has different facts. Um, this is this is the way to evolve to 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 to, to evade right wing populism, right wing populism as well as far left populism. So I'll, I'll come in at the, I'll come in at the second question, and uh, I'm going to uh, be uh, kind of uh, sum up. Some of the most kind of re- relevant uh, parts of the answer to that pretty quickly, uh, because I know lots of people want to put a question to Anne instead instead of me. I think there are three things that have mattered. I think number one are uh, the regular frequency of referenda on European treaties. 
uh, means that it is an issue that the Irish people have been consulted on regularly. Uh, and I think that's made a big difference to that particular debate. I think, secondly, uh, for, for quite a, a long time in thinking and writing about Irish politics, we saw the localism of Irish politics as a weakness. I actually believe it's a really big strength. Uh, I believe the fact that we have multi-seat constituencies in Ireland, that we have proportional representation, means that you cannot be a long-serving politician uh, without making ongoing efforts uh, to engage with all communities, all parts of a constituency. And I think that's been a big strength of Irish politics in dealing with some of the forces that Anne has discussed this evening. And then finally, I believe education really matters. And the fact that we have a primary and secondary level here in Ireland, um, a way of schooling and a way of delivery enrolment into schools that is very broad and very inclusive, I think is something that has served our country well now over many decades. Well, thank you both. Uh, Emma asks, uh, and in the book you focus on splits in the right. What role, if any, do you see for the right and the left together in the face of authoritarianism today? So there's certainly a role for the centre-right and the centre-left um, to team together to fight extremes. And to a certain extent, this is already happening. Um, you know, in the book, I start with a party and I also end with a party, just very briefly. And the party at the end, I, I talk about, you know, so who comes to the same house 20 years later? Um, and one of the answers is people who I were on, who I thought of as, you know, too left wing to speak to um, in 1999. Um, you can see reconfiguration of politics now in many countries, but especially in the United States, but, but in other parts of Europe as well, as people begin, as, as this nature of issues change, as people begin to understand political divides in a different way. Um, I think that people who once thought of themselves as on different sides of many issues will will begin to come together. Um, and, and, and that's happening. Um, you know, m more and more, um, it's become clear that the, 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 the values of liberal democracy and the institutions of liberal democracy need a lot more defense than we thought they did. Um, and, hearing that defense from both the left and the right um, is extremely important. And, and I, as I say, I, I think it's beginning to happen. Thank you. Um, William Daly asked a question which you, you both might like to come in on. Uh, it's a big one. To what extent did globalization slash market liberalization lead to the growth of populist politics and the so-called alt-right? So I talk about that a little bit in the book. Um, I do think that globalization mattered a lot, maybe not always in the way that that you think it did. Um, it was part of what gave people a feeling that our governments are not in control. Um, you know, this sense that somebody can make a decision in Shanghai and it will affect my job here in Dublin or my job here in Warsaw um, led to some of the feelings of frustration that people had um, since the decisions are being made elsewhere um, sense that our politicians are weaker than they used to be and that we aren't somehow represented by our leadership. And all of that, I think, was to some degree true. Um, and, um, and, and, and that feeling of discontent, of not being represented, 
was not recognized early enough by wide enough groups of people. And the, as it began to be expressed, it was very often dismissed. Um, so so I, I do think it mattered. I mean, I don't think that the answer to it, that the solution um, to that feeling is, okay, so we withdraw from the EU and we withdraw from the world and we build a wall around our country. Um, that doesn't solve the problem. That just you know, changes its nature. Um, one of the things we've learned, even just from the coronavirus pandemic, is that we are all connected in ways that are unpredictable. And there are a lot of, there are going to be more and more problems that require international solutions. Um, and so that, so withdrawal isn't an option. Um, but finding a way to engage with the world while making people feel represented and and making them feel secure at home um, is the task for um, people like your minister um, over the next decade or two. So just to come in on that, Brandon, I, I, I think the hidden villain in all of this uh, from a political point of view isn't so much the political consequences of globalisation. It is what has happened to the centre-right in uh, European, British and American politics but one of the big strands of centre-right thinking of conservatism uh, has in too many cases morphed into neoliberalism, into unashamed free market advocacy. And actually one of the great currents of conservatism is a willingness to protect institutions and the understanding that you need to get the balance right between what you have to protect to look after society and also enabling markets to create wealth. And a rupture has taken place within many elements of centre-right thinking that has lost sight of that. Uh, On globalisation, I strongly believe that to blame globalisation for some of the many political uh, discontents that we've discussed uh, this evening, in some cases, is a cop-out for politicians too many of the forces that have led to this sense of fracture are because of domestic, economic and political choices that have been taken. Uh, National governments can still make decisions regarding how they want to invest in education, how they want to invest in training, how they want to invest in their economies. Globalisation doesn't get in the way of many of those big decisions. And even if you look at the European Union, Look at the diversity of economies within the European Union and look at the different economic and political choices that successive governments take in different member states within the European Union. Globalisation and the single market doesn't stop any of that happening. Um, And politicians now blaming globalisation for the great challenges that we have today is a cop-out for too many of those politicians there's far, there's so many choices that we can make that can mediate the more damaging consequences of a global economy. Thank you. Uh, another big subject this time from Joe Carroll. At a time when the influence of the Catholic Church is diminishing in Ireland, for example, why do you think it seems to be increasing in Poland and driving politics in an extremely conservative position, especially in social matters? And maybe connected to that, and this is my words. Uh, why is anti-Semitism increasing in Poland? So that's a fascinating question. Um, in fact, the opposite is true. Um, in fact, the Catholic Church is shrinking in Poland. Um, fewer people go to church every year. Um, young people in particular don't go to church. 
um, the, the influence of the church is much smaller than it was. The prestige of the church is lower. And what you're seeing now in Poland is the church's reaction to its sense of lost influence. Um, um, the fact is the Polish Catholic Church used to have, maybe like the Irish Catholic Church, a kind of supra-political, non-partisan status in Poland, where it was just, you know, it was just a national institution and people who weren't even Catholic were loyal to it because of the role it played in fighting Hitler and fighting communism and so on. Um, that is no longer the case. And the church is now seen as absolutely aligned with one party. And it is this, you know, it is aligned to the, to the, to the ruling party, the, the far right law and justice party. And, and, and people, people who don't vote for that party now very often don't go to church. So what you're seeing is the church fighting a, a kind of losing battle. And I think some of the extremism and the anger that you hear coming from the Polish Catholic Church right now is the anger of an institution that has lost a lot of ground. Um, and instead of accommodating like some other Catholic churches have done in other countries, it is, tr it is fought back by becoming more extreme. Um, the rise of anti-Semitism is a very complicated issue that I don't know in the next nine minutes or two minutes we we can we can deal with sufficiently. I talk about it a little bit in my book because some of Poland's leading anti-Semites are people who are at this New Year's Eve party we were just talking about. Um, anti-Semitism was not part of Pol Polish public life. It was not part of politics um, until about two or three years ago. It was brought back by the ruling party as a political tool um, designed to be used as a sort of as a way of scaring people and as a way, again, of tarring the opposition party as being somehow foreign or in hock to foreigners or in hock to the Jews or something like that. And it's used now as it's been, it's been re, sort of reinvented for, for the modern period. Um, so, the, you know, and, and at the same time, the same party has also um, adopted homophobia, which was absolutely not part of Polish politics in any form ever. I mean, not as a mainstream political issue. And that's also now part of their arsenal of, you know, they describe their opponents as sort of, I mean, I'm now exaggerating, but, you know, Jewish, gay, foreign, you know, not Polish, unpatriotic traitors. And all those things get thrown into that basket. And it's another way to um, make their supporters feel patriotic and, and, and um, you know, that we are the real Poles and therefore we have the right to behave the way, the way we do. So it's a, I would, I would say that it's not a sentiment that you encounter walking down the street. I mean, I'm Jewish and no, I don't feel afraid walking around Warsaw or anything like that. It's more of a political tool used in online media and sometimes unfortunately on state television, um, which they control as a way of tarring the opposition. But it's a, it is a deep and difficult subject with a, with a long, complicated history, both before the war and afterwards. Thank you. And I think we're, we're going to finish with the next one because we are up against time. Uh, as a question, again, that you might both have something to say about, and it's a connected reason to the last one. In your opinion, why do we as a society, uh, we, why are we not learning from history and repeating the same power struggles that are aiming at extolling the regime of majority as opposed to having democracy that aims at equal participation? I mean, it's difficult to learn from history. You know, history doesn't ever repeat itself exactly. Um, it kind of rhymes and echoes rather than being exactly the same. And 
learning from history is difficult because what you because it's really learning about human nature. So the point of studying what happened in the past is to think about how these same kinds of issues played themselves out in a different era and to think, therefore, about how we might avoid them in the present. But you don't get from history a kind of rule book, you know, do do A, B, C, D, and then you avoid dictatorship. Um, it's more it's it's more complicated than that. Um, but I do hope that that people read history and 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 think about it. Um, and I know, you know, I know actually that many many politicians and and many people in public life do like like um, like Minister Donahue here tonight. I think Anne has summed it up so eloquently there that uh, history isn't a manual. Uh, politics isn't linear. You don't pull a lever and something automatically happens. That is exactly what you were expecting would happen. Uh, but uh, history, while it's not a manual, does still offer so many instructions and does offer so many uh, insights into the rhythms of what society can look like. Uh, and I, 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 in thinking about some of the things we've discussed here tonight over the last number of years, uh, uh, there are two thoughts that I've generated in thinking about what has happened in democracies in the past and what has happened in uh, other societies that are not democracies. Um, and it's firstly that political order, uh, the value of it is never to be underestimated, of order, of composure within societies, um, and that dark things can happen and do happen and have happened. Uh, but the second thing is, is even the darkest moments do pass as well. And anybody, for example, who does read American history uh, can look back to some of the moments in America in the 1960s and look at some of the great challenges that the, that democracy faced then, uh, but then can see uh, some of the things that happened in other parts of the 1960s in America uh, uh, that make can make you reflect on the fact that progress is still possible. Uh, so dark days can happen. They can arrive if you take things for granted, but those dark days also do pass. Uh, and uh, there is always... Uh, progress possible, but progress is never, never inevitable. So everybody, on behalf of Dublin City Council and Dublin City Libraries, I really want to thank Anne Applebaum for joining us from abroad, from Poland, and my Minister uh, for Finance, uh, Pascal Dugu, for joining us from uh, the heart of Dublin City. Uh, I want to thank them both for taking part. I want to thank you all so much for watching. We hope to see you at more events uh, during the festival, and uh, uh, good night. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. HistFest.